series on atonement theories where we're talking about the hows and the whys of um, Jesus' death on the cross. And so today, uh, last week we talked about just kind of the general overall idea of what atonement theories are and and what it means. And today we're going to be diving in to our first theory and maybe even spinning off into some theories that come off of this one. So Steve, where are we headed in this particular episode? Okay, so today we're going to talk about a way of understanding what happens at the cross, that has a fancy Latin name if you want to impress your friends, Christus Victor. Uh, and it goes by other names, sort of the, the victory or the cosmic victory or the uh, battle or sometimes even the ransom sort of picture. But the gist of the idea is, uh, why is Jesus died? Jesus' death on the cross is the, the consummate uh, battle against the powers of evil uh, in the world and that Jesus wins that victory not by killing his enemies but by dying for them and, and setting us free somehow in the process there. The, the How does exactly that work kind of still leaves us a little bit in the weeds but we'll dig into that a little bit. But um, remembering that uh, all the conversations we're having about atonement are different ways of trying to answer the question why did Jesus die? Like, what did that mean? Or, you know, we're all clear Jesus died for us. We've been confessing that in creeds for about 2,000 years now. But why did that have to happen? Or what was helpful about that that could be accomplished some other way? That's what atonement theories are trying to get at. Um, so, okay, the idea of Jesus' uh, death on the cross as a, a victory over the powers of evil, sin, death, whatever. Uh, w- w- let's maybe start with where would anybody get that idea from biblically? There's a couple places uh, in the later New Testament letters, Ephesians, Colossians, mm-hmm. that have this imagery of Jesus as the conquering hero who has led in captivity the vanquished enemy. And the enemy isn't like an enemy nation or power, mm-hmm. it's death itself. And so the idea mm-hmm. is that Jesus is triumphant over death. How? Where? At the cross. Um, Or maybe you could even say, um, I think John's gospel in particular is really, really strong on this because uh, when John talks about Jesus being glorified, Mm -hmm. John doesn't usually talk about like one day future in heaven. He's talking about the cross itself is the victory. So that Jesus dying on the cross isn't like, oh, it looks like Jesus uh, lost. That's actually how Jesus wins. That Jesus' victory is the dying on the cross. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of the, the whole gist of the Christus Victor model, is that um, uh, Jesus' way of defeating evil is there at the cross itself. Uh, and maybe in a, a similar to um, the, the way Jesus talks in Mark's Gospel about being a ransom for many. That sort of delves a little bit into penal substitution, except okay. in, in penal substitution uh, imagery, usually it's the debt is owed to God, and somehow someone has to offer mm-hmm. a payment back to God. Mm-hmm. When Jesus talks about giving himself a ransom, as he talks about in like Mark 10, uh, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The image is that all of the world humanity is held hostage by the powers of evil, and Jesus gives himself as the ransom or something like that. So it's not that God has to get paid off. Like, penal substitution can sometimes sound like God has to get paid off or satisfied or something like that. And the idea of Jesus giving himself as ransom is sort of, he's the one who gets offered uh, in place of, but the, the powers of evil and sin and death are the ones that hold us captive. Yeah, so Christus Victor also makes me think of Revelation 21, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which is a very popular funeral text um, where 
uh, God is, is uh, like descending from heaven to earth, and God is going to make God's home among God's people. And there's a brief description of what this looks like, um, that there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. Um, and um, because God has made a new thing, mm-hmm. and uh, what is what has been old, what is old, it has passed away. But now God is making this new thing. Um, but that kind of idea of that there is no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more death. Um, that always kind of reminds me of Christus figure. Yeah. That ultimately, who wins over death? You know, death is no more. Yeah. And even Revelation 21 is ripping off of a vision from Isaiah 25, where again, the prophet in Isaiah 25 uh, envisions this future grand feast celebration day. And Isaiah says, and all nations are gathered there, and the best food is served. He gives them in great detail about how good the food is. There's the best wine, and there's really good meat. Like, he's clearly really hungry when he's writing out this image. But then at this big party... It says, uh, God will destroy the shroud that is cast over all nations, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And it's almost like, here at the party, the thing that God, the reason we're celebrating is God has defeated death. And sort of that's that image of that Jesus at the cross is the one who defeats death. It's an inside job that Jesus died and destroys death by getting swallowed up by it. Uh, and then that act uh, blows open the power of death or something like that. But it's Jesus as uh, the victor that way. And it's not just over death, but over Satan as well. And so I think of you know those passages where it talks about Satan as the the lion roaming the earth, and um, you know the, the the fall of Satan from the heavens, and and all those kind of different stories, and even some from Revelation as well. Um, so it's not just that Jesus overcame death in this; he overcomes Satan. Right. And so Revelation is that final you know this all happened at the cross, but there's that final battle that we read about in Revelation yeah. where it says, okay. You know what, Satan? Yeah, you have really lost this war. You are done, and I'm sending you where you belong. And this is maybe a uh, point to, to highlight um, how the the idea, the image of Christus Victor, works a little bit differently than some of the other pictures. Um, that uh, because there's this image of sort of cosmic battle against the powers of evil, um, that makes sense if you are picturing that the world has these sort of evil powers that are out there. Um, later on, when we get to an episode or a conversation about penal substitution, you almost could have that way of talking about the atonement without even having the devil in the picture at all. You can just sort of have, we owe a debt to God, our sin is the problem, and it, it, again, it sort of depends on how you picture what the problem is. If there's a problem in me that I owe a debt, then you're going to sort of talk more penal substitution. If the problem is we're captive to these powers that are out there, like sin and death and the devil and evil, uh, then, pe- then the Christus Victor model is sort of the way you're going to talk. And I think that this is one of those areas where Christus Victor has a possible danger to it. Okay. Is it we could very easily become dualists, mm, okay. which is where that there are two equal forces in the world, in the universe, mm-hmm. um, good and evil. Right. And that God and Jesus and the apostles, they're all on the side of good and the devil and demons are on the side of evil, and that they are equal forces battling it out. Right. Um, and I think that that is a danger because we know who wins. It, it's right. Jesus. Right. Um, so that you know those aren't two equal forces that are trying to pull us apart. It's um, you know for sure we are simple creatures. We but it's I don't know. I think it's too easy to, 
you know, take Christus Victor and say that, you know, that they're equal forces in the world. And, oh, go ahead. But I think Christus Victor is what tells us that they're not equal. Mm-hmm. Though, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of people do think that they're equal because, you know, all the ancient, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, you know, you had the gods and, and you know, the, the demons and those were equal. But I think Christus Victor is what tells us and shows us that, no, these aren't equal because God will win out. It's not a battle to see who has more power. Right. We know because of Christus Victor atonement theology that God already has more power. This is something that's done and it's been taken care of. So maybe what we could say is sloppy Christus Victor theology yes. is easily abused. Yes. And so that if you're if you're going to have this conversation about Jesus' death on the cross is a victory over the powers of evil, the danger is don't get sloppy and say it was an open question who's going to win this battle. Nobody knew until finally the fight happened. And that, again, that could, that's the danger is that oh, sometimes yeah. the the biblical text hold that tension of it's like a battle and who's going to win, and they they don't mean it like it was ever uncertain. But yeah, Christus Victor tends to hold that narrative tension of. There's this contest between the powers of evil and God, and later when we talk about penal substitution, it's it's more like a, a picture of the criminal justice system. And you know, you know, you could fight the law, but the law's going to win. That song told me, you know, like no, God always wins. And that that uh, theory has a, has a different emphasis on God's in control. It's God's system, mm-hmm. and God always wins. So like you don't even need you don't even need to think about or talk about a personalized demon or devil in the penal substitution model, the, you can almost factor that out. It's, it's my sin that's the problem. I have to, someone has to pay for my sin. Mm-hmm. Who will do that for me? Whereas Christus Victor assumes the presence and power of realities and uh, personal and, and uh, evil, evil entities that are out there that uh, hold humanity captive. And we can talk about a whole variety of what those fa- powers and forces are are in the world, too, um, that uh, the, the ancient biblical writers are real keen on talking about these sort of demonic powers and principalities, and uh, th- those also show up. We've talked before in this podcast about the way systemic evil, like, you know, that, that often mm-hmm. evil works behind the scenes through systems and things like that as well, and that's a part of the human beings are captive to those things as well. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, again, one of the challenges, and maybe this is one of the, the reasons why it's important not to just put all your chips on one of these atonement theories, is if all you have is Christus Victor, it can sound like, I'm a perfectly fine person, I've done nothing wrong, I've just been held captive against evil, I'm not complicit in evil at all, I'm just as victim as being held captive by it, somebody has come to rescue me. On the other hand, if all you have is penal substitution, you're going to end up saying, I'm responsible for all my sins, everybody's responsible for their own actions, there's nothing bigger that holds us captive, there's no other powers or evil like that, it's just sort of you and your moral or immoral actions, and will someone come and pay your debt for you, that kind of thing. Yeah, and another danger to having just Christus Victor as your only atonement theory is that, like, we don't do anything in this atonement theory, Mm -hmm. like, Christ comes and rescues us, it's all on the power of Christ, and Christ rescues us from these things like uh, sin and death. Um, you know, the devil. And, you know, and that is really the only thing that, like, you don't do anything, uh, then I think it's a, it's quite easy to go, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. I mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. sin as freely as I want because I know that God is going to take care of it. So, you know, what's to stop me from killing Erica mm-hmm. across the table here? <laughs> you know, like, it. so I think that becomes slightly mm-hmm. problematic, which is why I think moral influence theory is really good, because, you know, Christ does also teach us good morals, yeah. 
Um, you know, there are things in the Bible that says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Like, I don't want Erica to jump across the table and kill me. So why would I, why would I do that to Erica? And also, didn't somebody once say, do not murder? Mm-hmm. Maybe I should follow that, you know? And right. for somebody who comes from a very strong grace background, you know, we're grace, 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 grace. We have three names for grace in the Wesleyan tradition. Like, you know, grace is what we're all about. And I know not to say that Luther is <laughs> Like, I, yeah, that, that's our language for you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know that, that she was well, but I can see where, you know, at least in my tradition where we could take that and saying, well, Jesus does all this for us. And so it doesn't matter, you mm-hmm. know, that, that grace is going to cover us. Um, but I think this, the saving grace for the Methodist um, and the, and again, not to say that you all don't have this, this is just, you know, I, I don't know your theology as well as I know my own, um, but our sanctification, you know, the idea of sanctifying grace and going on to perfection maybe pulls in a little bit of that moral influence atonement theory too, mm-hmm. um, helps to keep us from pushing this and, and just taking that as like, okay, Christ did all the work, now I can sit back and just do whatever. That That's a really interesting point that maybe each of these different atonement theories we're talking about are going to land some emphasis in different areas of our theology more heavily. So, sort of like you said before, Sarah, that you know, we're, we might, in our traditions, give different weight to different ones, <clears throat> that um, you could have a Christus Victor way of thinking about the atonement, and it never make a difference in how you live, uh, or yeah, what, what classically gets called sanctification, from being made holy and living this sort of different life, because, as you say, it could end up being like, Jesus rescued me, I could be a jerk, because I'm just a, Jesus rescued me. And that... Uh, somehow our theology is going to have to also talk about, well, okay, God's, God set us free. I don't have to be a jerk anymore. What do we, how, how do we talk about how, what the cross does for helping me become this mm-hmm. new creation kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this idea of uh, Jesus as the one who wins the cosmic battle is helpful in reminding us maybe there are powers that are bigger than we can control that we are victim to. But if that's all we hear, we'll end up, it's possible to say, I'm not responsible for my choices, I, I, I'm just trapped in... But that'll make me do it. Right, right, right. And you can end up with that sort of like uh, passing the buck kind of uh, thing as mm-hmm. well. Now, on the other hand, our culture that we live in may need to hear that kind of a word from time to time of, there are things bigger than any one of us can control. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, I, I immediately think of like the beginning of the, the 12-step program, that mm-hmm. any 12-step recovery starts with, I realized I was powerless and, and uh, I, was, I was sort of in over my head that I'd become mm-hmm. you know, unable to free myself. Lutherans had this way of saying in our uh, liturgies, uh, we were in bondage to sin and could not free ourselves. Like, and if that's, if that's true, then yeah, we need to have some kind of picture of um, being um, uh, captive to powers that, that are bigger than us. That it simply wasn't a matter of if I willed it hard enough, I could have freed myself. Nope, I'm like a captive who is held and I need someone who can do that rescuing. And in that regard, Christus Victor draws pretty heavily on like the imagery and stories of like the Exodus from uh, the Hebrew mm-hmm. scripture. So like there in that story, a whole nation full of people are enslaved by Pharaoh. They're not being punished or something. That it's not because they messed up or did something wrong. That's the condition they find themselves in because Pharaoh's a rotten jerk. And they cry out, and God liberates them, sets them free. And God, on regular points, will say things like. Your, your part in this is just to sit there. I will save you. I will rescue you. You don't have to take up a hand against her. You don't have to raise up an army. I will rescue. And God does that, right? God sets them free through the waters of the sea and brings them out into the promised land. And the New Testament sometimes borrows that image, sort of like Jesus is the one who creates this new exodus. And if we're really honest, Jesus at the Last Supper 
is borrowing the Passover feast. I mean, that Jesus sort of appropriates that whole story of liberation and rescue from bondage and says, hey guys, that's me. I'm about to do this in my body and in my blood at the cross. So if we're looking for where does this come from biblically, yeah, maybe like every Sunday for Lutherans, like at the, at the communion table, Jesus has borrowed that whole saga of liberation and rescue and the defeat of the of capital E enemy, whether it was Pharaoh or death or whatever, uh, and that God, Jesus has appropriated that unto himself. Said, that's this, this cross thing that's about to happen, this is what it's about, guys, liberation. Um, and that, that's a lot about what Christus Victor is about, liberation from the powers, however we name mm-hmm. what those powers are. So what a great segue to something I wanted to talk about. <laughs> hot digging. So, hot digging. It's like you did that on purpose. <laughs> so, um, like we had mentioned last episode, uh, many of these atonement theories have spun off into new directions and kind of become their own theologies. Um, and Christus Victor has a really great example of one of these. Um, from uh, Christus Victor, we get liberation theology. Um, liberation theology is still fairly recent. It's not as ancient as Christus Victor, who can be traced back to the Bible. I mean, liberation theology can as well, but it really took off during the American Civil War. And it is, um, so Christus Victor that uh, emphasizes that we are being saved from what? Sin, death, power of the devil. Liberation theology is that we are being liberated from like, slavery, economic oppression, or other types of oppression. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, there's, you know, and from liberation theology, we get, you know, even further, like, black theology, um, womanist theology, um, sometimes even feminist theology can fall into mm-hmm. this, but it's all of those theologies that are lifting up things like the Exodus story and God is the one that saves us, rescues us from slavery. Um, also, Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But it's, you know, this idea of God liberates us. So, taking that lens on it, Christus Victor, uh, especially as it spins out into liberation talk, uh, it's sort of like answering the question, why does Jesus die? Jesus' death is what sets us free from all the various powers that we have been held captive to. And yeah. you could name that as sin and death and the devil. Uh, you could name it as the, the systemic structural evils that are out there that hold us captive. And maybe you could say Jesus brings those together um, when he, uh, in, in his uh, first sermon back in his hometown in Nazareth, where Luke tells the story, he quotes from Isaiah 61, uh, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's uh, anointed me to bring good news to the poor, liberation to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to yep. let the oppressed go free, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. That, again, like, if you ask Jesus in that passage, Jesus, why have you come? Jesus' answer is right there in Isaiah 61, guys, yeah. and it's liberation talk. So interestingly, um, Jesus doesn't anywhere, at least in that story, say, well, you see, you all owe a cosmic debt, and I've come to pay that debt. Again, there's other passages we'll talk about that for, but in, in at least that key introductory story where Jesus sort of gives his, here's what I'm about, folks, uh, it's, it's this talk of liberation or of rescue from the powers that, that enslave humanity. Yeah, and there are certainly, like, I can see why this is such a big deal in today's society, because mm-hmm. this was, um, you know, became very popular, like I said, after the American Civil War, and all of that African Americans are newly freed slaves, 
Um, it's popular in South America, which had a lot of colonialism mm -hmm. and those uh, native cultures and uh, trying to be liberated from their colonial oppressors. Um, you know, and now in today's society, you know, feminist theology, queer theology, all of these um, very subsets of, I don't want to say minorities, but like not what we think of mainstream culture is now fighting against mainstream culture and being able to point back to Christ and saying, we can do this because Christ has liberated us and we are, you know, so, here. So liberation theology in a way borrows that excess narrative and says like it's not just Pharaoh that is the power that that enslaves humanity but and there's a whole bunch of ways of naming different ways that we get stuck in systems that are beyond our control or, or bigger than us yes and various writers then might say hey did you ever think about like the way we enslaved an entire race of people in this country hey maybe that wasn't a good idea and like that you know sort of like uses the exodus narrative and says like hey, uh, the God who freed the slaves back then also would be in the cause of freeing people uh, from slavery or from uh, racial discrimination or systemic racism or uh, economic oppression or military dictatorships or what have you. Each of those are ways that borrow that same image uh, of the Exodus story and, and says that's what Christ is about, setting us free. Yeah, and I definitely think that the liberation theology kind of is able to poke holes in Christus Victor about what its strengths and weaknesses are. You know, the strength is Christ is the one that frees us. Mm -hmm. You know, the weaknesses are, you know, things like, um, you know, for example, the hymns that kind of come out of Christus Victor, like Onward Christian Soldiers, um, what are some other ones? Um, What's that one? Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. That you can end up, like, and again, I think this is a, a great instance to highlight the difference between good Christus Victor and sloppy Christus Victor. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, as you pointed out earlier, and again, there's a, a double-edged sword to this, but authentic Christus Victor uh, atonement theory is this is all about Jesus as the one who fights the battle, mm -hmm. not us. And that is meant to be a safeguard against, it's not about us taking out weapons to go fight people we don't like. Jesus has done the fighting already. Sloppy Christus Victor can get used also as, uh, well, Jesus is leading this battle. You have to join the fight. Get your weapons. We've got to kill the people we don't like. And no, that's not how mm -hmm. it works. And so I think while there are uh, hymns that, that sort of miss that theology and treat it like we have to fight the battle, there are other really good hymns, and I'm totally biased here, but I think about Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is Christus Victor theology all over the yep. place. And it's about... Uh, you know, who will be the hero who goes and fights the battle, and it's Jesus, and uh, Jesus fights this when we can't on our own. Yeah. Um, and at no point in A Mighty Fortress is Our God does uh, the hymn say, so now you, O singer, you who are listening, you have to join the fight because, you know, the, the battle won't be won without your help. Mm -hmm. Nope, Jesus has done that fighting. No, one little word shall fail. fail. Right, right, right. Because that's a, that's a favorite amongst Methodists, too. We, we like our Luther right. a little bit. Wait <laughs> for that one. For that hymn, you know, and, and that one little word is Jesus. Right. It's nothing that we can do. Mm. It's Jesus does all this. Right. I'm thinking, too, there's another pop culture uh, instance that I think is maybe helpful here. Um, uh, some folks might be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, mm -hmm. and the first of them, or at least the one that most people start with, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's a really important but subtle difference between the book version and the movie version from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And I think this makes the difference between good Christus Victor theology and sloppy Christus Victor theology. In the book version... 
uh, when Aslan the Lion, who's the Christ figure, gets uh, killed by the evil witch Queen Jadis, <clears throat> and, and then rises from the dead and breaks the stone table, the battle's on, over and won. It's like, yep, that's the victory right there. Mm-hmm. When Aslan dies and rises. Um, in the movie version, mm-hmm. because this came after the mm-hmm. first of the Lord of the Rings movie, and every movie needed to have a CGI battle scene, after Aslan rises, uh, the other character's like, oh good, hooray, Aslan's alive. Uh-oh, we gotta go fight the battle, because it's still up uncertain mm-hmm. who's gonna win this, and now they have to go have this battle scene. Mm-hmm. And there's the climax of the movie version, where it's yeah. almost like... Anselm was the Calvary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the battle had already started, and then here comes uh, Aslan with uh, the two girls on his back. Right. And he's the one that turns the tide and wins the battle. Right, right, right. And yet, and and that battle still needs to be fought in the movie version. Whereas, like, in the in the book version, and C.S. Lewis, I mean, C.S. Lewis is tight in his uh, allegory. And, like, he, mm-hmm. he uses his narrative for a purpose. Whatever other accusations you might have about how he writes his poetry or his, his prose or writes his narrative... He, he's clear on his point of writing this story is to tell us the, the Christian narrative. And so he doesn't say, well, now because we've got the CGI budget, we're going to go have a battle scene. It's the, the, the victory is won and lost, uh, or won for God and lost for evil at the cross and resurrection. Mm-hmm. There's not a subsequent battle that also has to happen. And sloppy yeah. Christmas victor theology can be, well, the cross is like D-Day, and then like the final battle comes later, but we're not sure who's going to win, and Jesus needs your help, like Uncle Sam, I want you to be... No, the yeah. battle's already yeah. won and lost. Uh, and already the, the victory is assured at the cross and resurrection. And yeah, sometimes sloppy Christus victor theology can become hymnity or piety that's sort of like, well, Jesus started the battle, but he needs your help to win the battle, so you know, uh, now you have to enlist as well. Uh, and then it can get very militaristic from there. Yes. In a way that the biblical narrative always guards against. Yeah, but again, with sloppy Christus right. victor, that militaristic theme becomes problematic. Right. And it's because I think of those themes yeah. that we got the Crusades. Yeah. Which I think we can all agree on was a terrible moment in Christian history. <laughs> right. And as you rightly point out, the the often the justification was Jesus as the general leading us in this valiant, noble, holy war, so we have to fight this battle, uh, this temporal battle, because you're borrowing all those imagery, all that imagery of uh, God the one who's fighting the battle. And instead of realizing that uh, the the Christus Victor model itself like sabotages all that militaristic mm-hmm. like and again I think if we stay close to the way the Exodus story unfolds the way the the Bible uses that imagery of battle it's God's the one who fights the battle God does all the winning and losing the Hebrew slaves don't have to pick up weapons and go kill Egyptians no nope, let God do the rescuing you don't gotta worry about that trust that God's gonna do this and yet God is clearly on the side of rescuing the oppressed uh, yeah. and. It's because of sloppy Christus Victor that we have the need for liberation theology. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good way of saying it, yeah. And so, uh, it's a, it's in, in that regard, maybe a necessary corrective that was brought on by not rightly sort of paying attention to the way that story goes, or the way that metaphor yeah. is supposed to work. So, as we talk about how each of these atonement theories has limits to it, maybe this is one of those uh, boundaries of don't go any further, there be dragons beyond this point. That if we're going to talk about what is the cross about, it's about Jesus winning the victory. Okay, that's fair game, you're on good, solid biblical ground there. But don't let that, on the one hand, become sloppy in the sense of, so it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus already won the battle. Or on the other hand, don't let it become, well, the battle's not really won yet, Jesus needs me to add my, you know, I need to bring my weapons to this fight uh, and kill the people who I don't like. No, that's not how it works either. Um, and the danger, too, of um, passing the bucket, sort of the devil made me do all that looking mm-hmm. mean stuff, it's not my fault, uh, and recognizing, no, we are also 
part of the problem too. That it's not just the enemies out there and held me captive, but I'm part of the problem as well. And that's why we'll have to turn in future episodes to um, atonement theories that are willing to point the finger back at ourselves of, I'm part of the problem too. I'm not just captive to powers beyond, but I'm also complicit in my own captivity, so to speak, as well. Yeah, what does Paul say? I do the thing I do not want to do. Right. I cannot do the thing that I want to do. Or yeah, 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 yeah. We're involved. So, yeah, and because of that, we'll have to turn to one of those conversations in our next episode. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and hope you can join us next time. See you guys. Bye.